0: Welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve, and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. Welcome, Anissa. Thank you for joining us. Anissa is an anesthesiologist, which is better than an anesthetist, apparently. (laughs) She did her undergraduate training in Cape Town. Postgraduate training at WITS in Johannesburg. And then she's been traveling the world, working in multiple places in New Zealand, working in the UK and Glasgow. And now she's eventually ended up at the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital in Johannesburg. Thanks for joining us and welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So, Anisa, as surgeons and even pediatricians, we often encounter situations where we deal with children and this obviously can make things a bit more challenging uh, and more interesting than when we compare this to our adult colleagues. Things like inserting a simple drip or doing a lumbar puncture, doing central lines, suturing a simple laceration, all require a little bit more than just getting our patient to grin and bear it. Uh, And so we often utilize things like sedational anesthesia. Um, Do anesthesiologists ever get involved in sedational anesthesia?
1: We don't necessarily call it that, but <laughs> but um, yes, we do. And I think, I think it depends really on the institution. So in some institutions, that's purely the realm of an anesthesiologist or anesthetist. But uh, in others, um, we do recognize we can't cover everybody. So emergency care practitioners, surgeons, pediatricians, even radiologists um, and nurses, the nursing profession have come on board and um, have learned the necessary skills.
0: So what what do you call it then if you don't call it sedational anesthesia? We call it
1: procedural sedation and analgesia. So PSA is the acronym.
0: PSA, okay, yeah. cool. That's but the urologist so all of a sudden had a heart attack. But <laughs> 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 Tell me, what, what are some of your worries or concerns around sedational anesthesia? I mean, we kind of use it all the time and I think probably recklessly often. What are some of the worries around... PSA or sedational anesthesia.
1: So, I mean, this is a question that comes up time and time again, really, and there are a number of issues that could come up when you talk about uh, sedation, especially outside outside of the theatre environment. Um, one of the concerns is that when they've looked at when they've looked at all the literature, they actually found that complication rates were higher when they looked at sedation, and this was really multifactorial. So, one of the things they looked at were what well, basic safety standards adhere to, so you know when you work in a theater environment you 're very strict about the level of monitoring, um, your pre assessment of, of the patient, whether that be a child or an adult, um, and your preparation for for the patient mm-hmm. so um, those things are, those kinds of standards are sometimes not clearly set. Um, And not standardized And sometimes even where those are standardized They're not properly adhered to So that's the one thing Um, The other thing that comes up again Is you must remember that all the drugs Or most of the drugs used for sedation If given in high enough doses Can cause general anesthesia So Mm. there's the spectrum And It's not a linear spectrum, so it's not this wonderful stepwise progression from a light plane of sedation to deep general anesthesia, and that depends on a lot of things, the patient, the drug, um, and the comorbidities and those kinds of things. So um, sometimes non-anesthetists may not appreciate that, Um, and of course that goes in, in hand with a good understanding of pharmacology. Then one of the other things that comes up is that often you're in a situation where patients are deemed not well enough to have an anesthetic and you end up sedating patients who are quite sick um, because sedation is then deemed to be safer than a general anesthesia. But really because of the things I've mentioned already, that's often not the case. Um, And lastly, um, there's a lot of discussion around single practitioner or uh, you know, having one practitioner who's administering the sedation and performing the procedure, mm. um, as opposed to having two people, where one person is dedicated to administer drugs and look after the patient, and one person person performs the procedure. And because those lines are blurred and those standards aren't always adhered to, that's where you really run into trouble.
0: Yeah, so I suppose that's a bit of a minefield, potentially. You know, when you look at these things, and as you say, a theatre is obviously quite a nice, safe environment. You know just from a practical point of view, what are some of the the guidelines or the things we need to have with us or available what What preparation should we do before embarking upon sedational procedures
1: um, thank you that's a very good question. I think there are a number of of key steps, and we always talk about you know being the last boy scout and being prepared <laughs> so it's all around preparation, so that really is key um, And before you can undertake any kind of procedure, it's important to prepare the child. Okay. Okay. So you need to counsel, and often this is a part that we neglect a lot. So counsel the child appropriately, explain to the child, obviously you need to be developmentally appropriate, but explain what you need from the child um, and use other tools to to demonstrate um, what you may need to do. So we use a lot of visual imagery. Um, and then also, you know, consent and assentee forms part of that. Then you need to pre- prepare the caregiver. So as far as possible, and this again is, is a, they really are a tool that we underutilize because often what we tend to do is we separate the caregiver, be it a parent or a guardian, from the child and take them into a procedure room. Mm. But more and more, it's encouraged to actually engage with the caregiver and utilize them. So again, explain to them, explain to them what you need them to do, and help them, help, help them help you. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Then um, you need to you need to prepare your your environment, and um, there are a number of different acronyms one could use. But it is important to to spend a bit of time doing that. So, what you need to do is you need to create a child friendly environment. Um, And again, this can be a lot of fun. You can (laughs) spend time putting um, fancy, you know, nice stickers and making your environment conducive to, you know, something that's non threatening for a child. Something like temperature is often neglected. But Mm. it's so key, you know, often when we do procedures, we start undressing children and we expose them, especially something like changing a burn stressing. In a cold environment with a draft, you know, that really irritates those exposed nerve endings. And it's something so simple that you don't pay attention to. Um, Often procedure rooms aren't equipped with the right level of monitoring. So before embarking on any procedure, you need to decide on what you need in order for, to, go, to navigate the procedure safely, and then what, pharmaco- what drugs you will use to achieve those. And then once you know what drugs you'll use, you then, you then know what side effects or, they could potentially have. Um, and if you're anticipating something like respiratory depression, it makes sense you would then have the appropriate monitoring. So you would look at saturation, you'd look at heart rate, and you'd look at blood pressure. Um, the ability to provide oxygen Not all procedure rooms are equipped with um, oxygen ports And then always, always prepare for, um, for a worst case scenario So you need to have adequate resuscitation equipment available um, and, res- and that includes drugs as well as your rescue, your rescue devices um, For example, for airway management Including, included in drugs, I think, also is important to have um, certain antidotes. So, for example, if you were going to use opiate drugs, it makes sense to have something like naloxone available. Um, and if you were going to use a benzodiazepine, it makes sense to have something like flumazenil available. Um, and so that would be, yeah, that would, that would go into pharmacy. So a useful acronym to use is something like SOAPME. Um, and the first part of soak me is also something that's often neglected. So suction, having adequate suction so that you can clear secretions mm. um, because they can often obstruct an airway. Uh, the availability to prove um, to provide oxygen, so that's your O. A is airway equipment, as I've mentioned, especially to rescue airway. P for pharmacy, the drugs that I've mentioned, both antidotes and the resuscitation dr- drugs and the drugs you're going to use. Your monitors and then the, the other equipment you're going to need for the patient and the procedure.
0: Yeah, so it's actually quite a comprehensive setup you need. I mean it's almost like a recess room or a theater for that matter, but I suppose you know you need to have enough equipment and etc. to make sure that you can give a safe almost anesthetic without I suppose a full anesthetic machine available. Absolutely. Uh, you were talking about preparation of the patient and the caregiver. Can I ask you, what are your thoughts on fasting guidelines for sedational anesthesia? I mean, we obviously, I mean, you can maybe just remind us what the fasting guidelines are, but are those also important for sedation or is it not as important?
1: So, remember, so there are two things. So, remember, I did say that sedation is a spectrum. And if you are expecting that you may require, this patient may require a little bit more than just one agent um, you Then that's a, that's a different consideration entirely So when we talk about fasting for sedation We talk about simple sedation and advanced sedation Now simple sedation is Anytime you're using an oral drug Or uh, when you're using um, a Internox or nitrous oxide okay. So at, in, in Johannesburg at altitude we don't often use that But at the coast or at lower altitudes They may well use that quite often Or a single dose, a single dose or titrated dose of midazolam. So a single agent, you're using one agent, that's simple sedation. Mm -hmm. Where your plan is to um, use that technique, simple sedation, no fasting is required. Okay. Okay. So patients do not need to be stopped unnecessarily. And to be very honest, you can utilize that because in younger children like infants and neonates we actually actively promote breastfeeding Mm -hmm. um, while doing the procedure so that is another non-pharmacological techniques that we use to help facilitate the procedure where you anticipate using anything other than that so where you are using a drug in combination with another drug or um, other iv drugs other than midazolam you have to fast as you would for the general anesthetic. okay So just to remind you of what that is, it's very simple. you'll have to adhere to the 642 guideline. Um, so up until six hours before the procedure, you're allowed to have solids. Up until four hours before the procedure, breast milk is allowed and actively encouraged. Up until two hours before the procedure, you're allowed to have clear fluid. Now, a clear fluid is anything that you can sort of read a newspaper print through, and that includes water, but I like to, I like to add some sugar to that. Mm. So I'd like to have something that contains sugar. So clear apple juice, clear grape juice, vitamin water, energy is fantastic. Um, and often what we find easily available in our water is some rooibos tea with sugar. Okay. Just make sure you don't add milk. Um, yeah, so, as, so, so we're quite good in children, I think. If you can have a child that's starved for an excessive period of time, you're going to have a grumpy child who's less <laughs> likely to, uh, to comply with what you need them to do. So it's actually in your best interest to, um, to be vigilant about being quite liberal uh, when it comes to adhering to those standards. Adhere to the standards, but allow them to drink up until two hours before, for example.
0: Okay, no, great. Anissa, what are some of the common drugs that we use for this type of procedure? I mean, you've mentioned midazolam. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the other common drugs that you utilize on a daily basis or that you've seen utilized on a daily basis?
1: So when it comes to talking about drugs, we we very clearly differentiate between the drugs that anesthetists are allowed to use and those that non-anesthetists are allowed to use. Um, and I think that's for safety, for safety reasons, and they probably good reasons for doing that. Um, but that is ever evolving; it's changing, and um, I think with good reason because more and more people are required to give uh, sedational and um, analgesia. Mm-hmm. So, midazolam is the most commonly used one, uh, one of the most commonly used drugs. But it's important to note that that while midazolam provides good anxiolysis and uh, sedation. It has no analgesic properties whatsoever. Mm. So, you know, it's perfectly fine when you're trying to navigate through a CT scanner, for example, so something that's completely non-painful, um, but when you're inserting a central line or putting in an intercostal drain or um, suturing a patient, it's, it's fairly inappropriate as a sole agent. Yeah. So you do then, you're duty-bound to add a drug that has analgesic properties. So one of the most commonly used other drugs then would be ketamine. Mm. Um, so ketamine, fairly commonly used, I think it developed a bad name because it was used so liberally and in <laughs> such generous doses that we, we started to uh, have a lot of the psychotropic effects that um, that really were quite undesirable. So... Ketamine has a wide range of indications It can provide anxiolysis, sedation, analgesia And yes, anesthesia as well mm. And it, it's all dose dependent um, It can be given by uh, so many routes You can give ketamine utterly, uh intramuscularly Which I don't recommend in children um, IV and um, more recently intranasally So intranasal use has become quite popular in emergency units and um, can even safely be given by nurses as well. So the intranasal youth route has really become more and more popular in recent years and it's quite convenient. Mm. It works quickly, you don't need IV access, it's safe, it's generally well tolerated by children um, and it's actually been studied quite extensively. So, um, so I think it it's, it's will become more and more prevalent as people become more comfortable with it.
0: So I mean, do for things like ketamine. I mean, do you recommend regular saturation monitoring and oxygen, regardless of whatever uh, mode you use ketamine in, or is it only for the IV sort of you know situations? Or I, I mean, the problems with ketamine, as you say, is obviously very dose dependent. So I'm just wondering what your your kind of guidelines are in terms of that. I mean, if you're using an intranasal at the appropriate doses, is it safe to do without monitoring? Or would you recommend for these kinds of drugs, dormicum or Mendazolam, ketamine, that patients always, if possible, should be monitored?
1: So I am an anaesthetist, so I like to monitor things. So, so for me, um, that's what I prefer. That said, I know it's not always practical. Um, and so I just like to think about what I do. I, I sometimes use ketamine orally in fairly high doses. So I mean, five, six, seven milligrams per kilogram. And I give it as a pre med um, and then leave the ward to go back to theatre and don't monitor those patients. Mm-hmm. And that is recognized safe practice. Yes. So I think it's fair to, ac- to say that where, where ketamine is dosed orally, it is certainly acceptable. Um, certainly when you're using ketamine IV. And I think that goes for almost any dosing IV Barring the very low dosing um, So I think once you're exceeding Sort of 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram IV I think you should use some kind of monitoring And even something like a saturation probe Which, already, which also monitors heart rate I think that, that would suffice um, But once you're exceeding 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram You need full monitoring Because those are actually doses That we would use for general anesthesia yeah. So then you need Continuous saturation non-invasive blood pressure, ECG monitoring um, and a dedicated pre- person to actually monitor that patient mm-hmm. um, and with the intranasal like I say it is a bit newer. But and and it is it has been found to be safe. I think we're awaiting more and more studies. But um, the landmark study for that showed that it was safe when you give it in 1.5 milligrams per kilogram intranasally, and that was done in a casualty so emergency department setting. Without continuous monitoring So maybe sat- saturation But um, not continuous ECG for example And non-invasive blood pressure So we all know the benefits of ketamine Is that it is more cardio stable um, And it is, has less respiratory depression mm. uh, Be very careful in the small babies And be very careful in children Who have been ill for a long time okay. um, Because it does have, still have the potential To cause cardiovascular collapse in those patients
0: mm. I was just hearing you talk. I mean, I think one of the, the big things that we often do incorrectly is give the inappropriate dose for things like ketamine. And I think, you know, as probably as a old age adage, you know, we're often giving too high doses for the correct indication. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a good idea to start low and titrate as the need arises as opposed to giving too large a dose initially. And that's probably why yeah, as you say, it got a bad reputation mm. and also why people have gotten into trouble using these relatively safe drugs.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to know that we always, we always do worry about the, the um, psychiatric effect, you know, the hallucinations. Mm. And in children, it's important to recognize that, especially girls, if you use doses of more than two milligrams per kilogram, you actually can cause nightmares. And a single dose of ketamine... Can cause nightmares for up to a year. Now, when you're wanting to get through your procedure, you may not consider that. But imagine having nightmares for a whole year. Um, that can be quite traumatic for a little child. So, so it is. But like I say, that's dose dependent. So if you stick to less than two milligrams per kilogram IV, and really, like I say, that's those are ge- that those, those are doses we use dose. for general anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are looking, if you are using, finding that you need those kinds of doses the recommendation, I think, is to have an anesthetist on board. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we often use to neglect the psychotropic effects in young kids because they couldn't really tell us. But it's obviously becoming more and more apparent over time.
1: Yeah.
0: So, Nisa, you mentioned that, you know, some of the sedational drugs, such as midazolam, don't obviously have any analgesic properties. And you recommended that we're obliged, really, to supplement those with some analgesia. I mean, obviously, things like local or regional blockades are important. Are there any other drugs? I mean, people often use midazolam and morphine together. What are your thoughts in terms of analgesia in this particular situation? Okay.
1: So so really, morphine, I think, is not great for procedural purposes. I mean, if if you just look at the pharmacology of morphine, it just takes too long to work Mm. and it works for too long. So morphine for peak effect takes about half an hour and it works for four to six hours and you may not actually need that. Um, And then of course you need to bear in mind all the side effects that come with morphine. Um, That said, you know, I love the opiates as a, as a, as a group. So I'm not discouraging the use of opiates, but I think a better choice would be to use something like a synthetic opiate like fentanyl. Now, many people are not, not um, comfortable with using it. They're not aware of, of what fentanyl is outside of the theatre environment, but it is becoming more popular. Okay. For a number of reasons So the first thing is that it's got a far better profile In terms of it's time to onset and offset So fentanyl, depending on how you give it If you give it IV, it takes about 2-5 to five minutes to work mm. And works for up to an hour okay. So it does sound like, it, you know already It's sounding far more ideal in terms of being suitable for a procedure mm. um, Especially one that's not predicted to have significant post-procedural pain Yes um, the, the, the what's also uh, started becoming very interesting is the use of intranasal fentanyl. So I mentioned the intranasal use uh, route before, and um, it's really something that I've come to appreciate a lot because, again, you have the advantage of not, being, not needing IV access, mm-hmm. um, and it works really quickly because you know the absorption from the nasal mucosa is quick. Um, and so if, And again, there have been lots of studies, and studies even done in neonates, Uh, which looks at using intranasal fentanyl safely. Mm. And they've looked at ventilated and non-ventilated patients. Generally, if you're ventilated, you have IV access. (laughs) But um, this has been looked at in casualties, so emergency departments for burns, for fractures, uh, for a number of conditions where you've got moderate to severe pain. Um, And it's been shown to be quite safe and very effective. So it's been compared to... Morphine and even regional anesthesia mm. So I quite like it um, You're given a dose of 1.5 micrograms per kilogram Of undiluted fentanyl And it works within 2 to 5 minutes Peak effect at 10 minutes And it can last you up to 30 to 40 minutes okay. So it's great for a short procedure And very nice to know is that You can discharge a patient home after an hour Okay. So you will need continuous monitoring because you're giving a potent opiate. So right. continuous saturation and heart rate monitoring, mm-hmm. and where you can, blood pressure is also advisable. It is more cardio stable than morphine, mm. but it can cause respiratory depression and it can cause a bit of a bradycardia.
0: Okay.
1: Um, but that said, you could give a dose, perform your procedure, and discharge a patient home after an hour quite safely.
0: Hmm. That's quite a good alternative then to. Things like morphine,
1: absolutely. Um, I think more and more people, certainly overseas. I know the Australasians are quite fond of it, mm-hmm. um, and and I, I hope that it catches on here in South Africa because I think it's a vital, it's a vital drug that needs to be explored a bit.
0: Is there a nasal applicator or spray, or do you just?
1: We use the IV formulation, so it's it's exactly yeah. the same formulation that you would have. Um, there is a lovely. Na- it's it's not a nasal. Applicator. It's an atomizer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called. Um, it's a mucosal atomizer device, a MAD device. <laughs> 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 and so, um, and you can use it not just for fentanyl. You can use it for uh, prescribing all your intranasal drugs. But that said, you don't have to have it because mm-hmm. I know in many of our hospitals, it's yet another consumable that needs to be procured. So if you do have access to it, it is fantastic because it allows. Atomization and it allows for the mucosa to be coated nicely And absorbed The drug to be absorbed But uh, you don't have to use it The key is to use undiluted drugs So you're giving as little as possible Don't ask the patient to sniff Because <laughs> when they sniff They swallow the drug yeah. And it won't get absorbed from the gastric mucosa So then you'll think Why is this fentanyl not working? <laughs> um, and, but just a gentle squirt into the nose With your patient reclined at 45 degrees It's generally quite non-threatening I've had quite a few autistic patients also accepted very cooperatively um, And I found that it's worked well for them too
0: Okay, cool, yeah, it's definitely something worth trying Okay Um, We've also spoken a little bit about local anesthetics I mean, I am quite in favor, I must have local analgesia uh, For these kinds of procedures but I think we generally forget a lot about the potential side effects or risks associated with local anesthetic because we believe it's just a local thing. What are some of the risks that we should just be aware of or cognizant of when we're using local anesthetics?
1: Okay. So I'm, I'm a keen regionalist. I love regional anesthesia. Um, and so I'm glad that you do too. I know from working with you that um, that, is, that, is, that is often the case. And it, it works well. So... Um, the real concern with, re- with local anesthetics is the potential for toxicity. Mm-hmm. And really it's because of the way they work. So local anesthetics work by blocking sodium channels and blocking the propagation of action potentials. So that nerve signal actually can't get to the brain. So the signal carrying the pain telling the brain, you have, I have pain, it actually doesn't get there. Mm. But it's non-selective. So it blocks sodium channels. It can block sodium channels everywhere. And one of the places where we have sodium channels is in the in our conduction system in the heart. Uh-huh. Um, so, so that is why local anesthetic toxicity is a concern. So it's important always to bear in mind what the, the maximum doses allowed are. Mm. And for the two commonly use drugs that that we have in South Africa, lignocaine and um, bupivacaine. Um, very easy to find that, you know, you can just Google it and find the reference. But for lignocaine, it's three milligrams per kilogram if it's alone, so plain lignocaine. But if you add adrenaline, you have a little bit more leeway and you can use up to seven milligrams per kilogram. So what I, and for bupivacaine, it's two to three milligrams per kilogram. So in your younger children, like neonates, for example, because of the different pharmacokinetic properties that neonates possess, I use two milligrams per kilogram. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what I always do when I'm doing any kind of regional is take the weight of the child and I calculate the maximum dose and then I work backwards. So I always know what I'm, what I'm not allowed to exceed. And it's okay. Those are the safe doses. So it's okay to give. 3 milligrams per kilogram of bupivacaine but right. don't exceed that and when you're mixing the two, because sometimes that happens as well, where you might give a little bit of lignocaine for something and a bit of bupivacaine for something else, it's important to bear that in mind as well <laughs> so, so you can't give 3 milligrams per kilogram of bupivacaine and then go you know, and give the toxic dose for the maximum dose for lignocaine as well
0: so it's a cumulative effect. It's a
1: cumulative effect, and that effect is for bupivacaine up to six hours.
0: Mm. So you
1: can't exceed that dose for six hours. Yeah, and then um, and and really, there are protocols for that guide the management of local anesthetic toxicity. Something like intralipid is crucially important to have nearby. And if you work in an environment like a theatre where where you have uh, operating theatres you should have intralipid available because the assumption is that there will be regional anesthesia performed mm-hmm. there. So you should be able to access it. But there are protocols available as well that would guide the use. But cardiotoxicity and neurotoxicity are the other concerns. So the potential for seizures as the serum plasma concentration of the local anesthetic increases. So seizures and um, happen actually before cardiotoxicity so if you have a patient who you've just given a dose, uh, you've just done a a block, and they start convulsing, be very wary of what is to come, because you might have complete cardiovascular collapse mm. that happens after that.
0: Okay, so that's a good but scary warning sign.
1: Yes, I mean, that, that <laughs> said, um, I've actually never seen it. Um, and, and more often than not, it happens not because... You've exceeded a dose, but it happens because there's been um, intravascular injection, which obviously is undesirable, but I mean, in error. So um, so that's usually the setting in which it occurs, more than actually exceeding a maximum safe dose.
0: Mm-hmm. So along the same lines, I mean, day case surgery is becoming quite popular these days, and obviously multimodal analgesia is a real sort of buzz phrase that's being utilized and thrown around. I mean, we've spoken a little bit about some of the analgesic drugs and, you know, blocks and those types of things. Um, and obviously blocks can be very useful, you say, up to six hours after an operation. What are What is your kind of approach to this category of patients in terms of analgesia specifically?
1: It can be tricky uh, because you need to safely navigate sending the patient home into an unmonitored environment. And in our setting, you're often in a situation where Patients or parents may not have access to transport um, or the resources to get them back to a hospital should they need to do that urgently. So we always have to bear that in mind. Um, I think regional anesthesia is actually perfect for this. So initially, there was a reluctance to send patients home with fun- with with uh, regional techniques that were still working. So, for example, you had a leg that you know the patient couldn't move or an arm, um, mm-hmm. but more and more people. Thank goodness people pushed the boundaries and did start to send those patients home. And as long as you do it with proper counseling and education. So it's important to, if you have a child who's verbal and can, you know, developmentally appropriate and can understand, explain to the child and explain to the parent um, that they need to protect the body part that has been um, anesthetized. Mm. Because um, obviously if they don't have sensation, then that can affect uh, protective mechanisms So for example You could leave your hand on a hot plate And not feel it yes, um, And actually burn And cause damage in that, in that way So where, where possible If you've blocked um, an arm We try to put the arm in a sling um, But obviously that's not always possible For example in the event of a caudal mm. anesthetic So it's all about education And telling the patients And the parents What to expect how to protect the area um, and just some 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 you know being cautious around that. But it certainly has been deemed safe to send children home. And if you use plain local anesthetic, you can have a block that works for about six hours. But if you and I, I certainly in my practice, I like to add things to my blocks, whether mm. they be caudals or peripheral or plexus blocks. And one of my most uh, common additives is something like clonidine, mm. which is an alpha agonist. And that thankfully prolongs the analgesia quite significantly uh, by double the time. So you can get 12, 12 hours and even more um, of analgesia, but then mm-hmm. you'll be able to move your limb. Okay. So um, so the motor, the motor block caused by the bupivacaine wears off and you have the analgesia that then lasts for another six to eight hours. Sometimes even longer if you get lucky.
0: Cool, that's quite a nice adjunct then to the straight logo anesthetic.
1: Absolutely. The limitation is that in South Africa, clonidine is a Section 21 drug, so some places it's difficult to get hold of. But it's worth going through the necessary paperwork and motivation to
0: get it. Yeah, I think it. once, it's, once the hospital's been or assessed or approved, it's generally quite easy to then get it is. then. Yeah,
1: absolutely. The other thing also is that. Especially when there is a regional on board, you need to be very cognizant of the fact that you don't want the patient waking up at 2am in absolute agony because the regional technique has now worn off. Mm-hmm. So you need, what I always counsel parents and patients about is the take-home analgesia needs to be given regularly, regardless of whether the patient actually complains of pain. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you take into account the predicted pain for that procedure, yeah. but if the predicted pain was significant enough to warrant a regional technique, you can assume that you would need regular analgesia, at least for the first two, three days. Mm-hmm. So, what I usually do is I say, please don't wait. Give them, I give them the time of first analgesia, and they need to get it regularly for the first couple of days, and thereafter, they can then get it as needed. Mm-hmm. But it's important because often our regional, especially if you've had sort of a morning procedure or an afternoon procedure or even a late afternoon procedure, you'll end up waking up at two, three, five a.m. in absolute agony because at that point you've now got nothing on board, not even paracetamol.
0: Mm. So I mean, you've spoken about sort of take-home oral analgesics. What are the, you know? It's always a bit of a controversial thing in kids, you know, because people say, "Well, you can give them paracetamol, but that's it." So, I mean. You know, and then there's the other extreme, obviously, where, you know, adults, we give them morphine to take home, for example. I mean, what are the regular available oral analgesics that you can give young kids?
1: So that very much depends on where you work um, and what country you work in and what institution you work in. Unfortunately, we are still quite limited. In terms of what we can give children, but for example, um, I was speaking to a colleague in Sweden where they, for their t- post tonsillectomy, send their children home on oral morphine. Um, that's certainly not the practice in South Africa, and but it is something to bear in mind. Mm. So, so in terms of um, in terms of sen- of oral analgesics, I actually still prefer the non combination analgesics. The reason being is that I'm able to give the right therapeutic dose of the drug. Unfortunately, that comes with having to give, you know, possibly a few drugs. But there's also no discounting the placebo effect of paracetamol. That's been proven, especially in children. So it's something that we do need to bear in mind. But the combination preparations like pain and Miprodol, while I do still use them, um, tend to have lower doses Um, Of the ingredients So you actually have quite a bit of leeway there Mm. Um, And so I like Giving my paracetamol in the appropriate dose And my non-steroidal in the appropriate dose
0: I must say I quite I mean I used to ironically give The combination drugs but I've also moved back to giving individual drugs And the reason for that is Twofold, the one is the dosage And the other is that you can stagger them So what I would do now for example Is give paracetamol and then give a non-steroidal Three to four hours later and then they can alternate them. So there's actually a crossover in terms of the duration of action. And we found that they have much better pain control that way instead of giving a combination drug every six to eight hours that doesn't seem to last quite as long as you want it to.
1: Absolutely. Especially in that fifth, sixth hour. You know, now if you're, if you're staggering it, you're actually be able, able to maintain a better level of overall analgesia. Mm-hmm. So I think that works really well. The other issue with a lot of the combination preparations has been uh, the fact that many of them contain codeine, which has become fairly contentious. There, there are two issues. And the first thing is that many people were using sort of IV codeine as a single agent. Um, and I don't really remember ever using that in, in South Africa. We generally use it as combination. Um, now, the issue around codeine is actually quite interesting pharmacogenetically speaking, <laughs> um, because they found... Codeine is a pro-drug, so it has to go through the liver, get metabolized, and then it becomes morphine, and that's how it actually exerts its effect. But there are some people who metabolize codeine very quickly and some people who metabolize it very slowly. So if you metabolize it very slowly, you're going to have very little effect. So it's mm. going to have a sub-therapeutic effect, and it won't work well for that patient. Mm. But if you metabolize it very quickly, you'll end up with, you know, a high concentration, plasma concentration of morphine very quickly. And there actually were a few deaths that were reported in the U.S. Mm. And that's why the FDA has given it a black box warning and it's been um, discouraged. In South Africa, there's been a lot of talk around this. And the fact that we don't have other suitable alternatives in some patients um, where we predict that post-operative pain management might be more tricky And again, especially in patients, for example, coming for tonsillectomy. Mm. These are notoriously painful procedures and can be painful for up to two weeks. So um, I think it's fair, given that we've had no reports, no case reports, nothing, um, certainly uh, at the various institutions with colleagues with whom I've interacted, and we've had extensive conversations around this. Um, we've decided to continue to, with, with caution, proceed mm-hmm. with caution and use it scrupulously um, and I think we can still derive benefit from it in that, in, the, in certain settings.
0: Yeah, and I think we should always also bear in mind the givers can give us a lot of information about their children. So, you know, we might find that some parents will say, listen, this works very well for my child and this one doesn't seem to have any effect. And I think, you know, as long as we take cognizance with that as a, as as well as you know, offering suggestions about ways to improve that situation, we can probably actually get very good analgesia for these kids post-operatively.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So in terms of just going back to answer your initial question, we still do have paracetamol. We have a variety of non-steroidals, which can be given orally, or even via suppository, which works really well. Mm. Um, and And then in select cases, I mean, for, uh, for example, where you have oncology patients who are quite tolerant to, to morphine and have received it before. In select cases where you've got significant pain, I think it's fair to individualize for the patient, take into account the family circumstances, and, and possibly prescribe oral opiates like oral morphine syrup or something like that um, in an older child. I, I think that you know, an experienced clinician would be able to do that safely. Um,
0: yeah, it's all about knowing your patient, obviously.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And knowing your pharmacology. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Sunisa. I think we've all gained a lot and lots to think about and remember when we come to doing these daily things uh, to keep us and our patients safe. Thank you so much, and uh, we wish you all the best for your future endeavors. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.